I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes. We'll be looking at chapter 5, verses 8 to 20. Ecclesiastes 5, 8 to 20. This is God's holy and inerrant word. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with the money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity." When goods increase, they increase who eat them, and what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, What I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God." For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy in his heart. Father, we pray that our hearts would indeed rejoice in your word, and that our hearts would be receptive to its teaching, and that you would receive all the glory in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last week, Solomon was at the temple as you know, and he was calling upon us to worship God with, remember, reverence and awe. We were commanded to listen closely, to speak carefully. We were to vow cautiously and to fear, which was the focus, to fear consistently. We were to go from terror before a a holy and just God to reverence and awe, which did what? Which led to obedience to God. And see, no one is more worthy of our attention than God. We were taught last week that your chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Well, Solomon visits the temple with that in mind and the lessons that he laid out there concerning God and and with this worship of God with reverence and awe still in our minds, it kind of seems jolting that he immediately proceeds to talk about money now. He goes from worship, as one writer said, to the wallet. 
He goes from the fear of God to the finances of life. He, he goes from reverence in all to revenue and assets. It seems like this dramatic change takes place in topic. But see, as jolting as it may be or seem, this topical shift, it, it really is no surprise. I want you to think about this. Solomon has just made the case that God must have our full attention. He must have our full allegiance. And, and what is more likely to get us distracted from that calling, from that longing, that holy pursuit to, to make God the center of our lives and the issue of money. And so in chapter 5, verses 8 to 20, Solomon presents us with a series of reasons why the love of money is simply vanity. He wants to help us win this spiritual struggle against the seduction of wealth that would distract us from our true calling to glorify God. Well, if you look at the passage, and we're going to get into a little teaching time here, uh, it's set up in what is called a, a chiastic structure. And I'm not going to take much time explaining this, but I did want to point it out. The, the whole section here begins in verse 8 of chapter 5, and it actually goes all the way to chapter 6, verse 9. And, and those passages form this funneling effect. I mean, let me explain. In, in the first verses, 8 to 12, we have people who cannot be satisfied. They, they, they cannot enjoy anything. But then when you go all the way to the end, of cha- verse 9 of chapter 6, you have people who cannot enjoy again. You have people who cannot be satisfied. And so you see that kind of uh, connection. And then we have uh, verses 18 or verses 13 to 17. And that was the people that can't enjoy. And then it moves in and it moves in and it moves in. Like I said, you don't have to follow this so much as to, to note that the idea behind what Solomon is doing here in his writing is putting our focus on verses 18 to 20. At the center of this, verse 8 of chapter 5 to verse 9 of chapter 6, at the very center, when you work your way in, Solomon concludes that we should enjoy. Enjoy the moment. Enjoy your time, the food, your drink, your toil. And if we're to expand it as we can, what he's saying here in light of the whole passage is that enjoy the moment because it's a gift from God. Enjoy the moment in Jesus, as we will see, because it's a gift from God. That's what verses 18 to 20 is communicating. That's the focus of the passage, and, and it serves as the conclusion of that structure. But it also serves as the, uh, the focus of our sermon text this morning. And see, before Solomon comes to that conclusion, before he points us above the sun to God himself… He, he wants you to, to understand, he wants you to grasp the vanity of prosperity. And he begins by reminding us of a topic that he's brought up already in, in chapter 4, this topic of oppression and injustice. Look at verses 8 and 9. Solomon says, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. 
For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to, the cultivated, to cultivated fields. Now, these verses here are, uh, by all accounts, looking at the commentators, very difficult to translate. Uh, what is plain enough is Solomon sees something that we all see. He sees this oppression in the land. He sees injustice in the land. In fact, at every level of society. And, and his point he's making is that the poor always seem to get the short end of the stick. No, no matter the government, no matter what type, Solomon tells us not to be surprised at this. It, 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 do not be amazed at the fact that this is true. He's being a realist here. He's reminding us. He's not excusing the unrighteousness of those who cause the oppression. He just knows that, that no matter how hard we try, in a fallen, sinful world, oppression and injustice will exist. Now, what is difficult to understand here is why Solomon thinks he sh- we should not be surprised. He writes, for the high official, this is the reason why. Don't be surprised. Why? Because the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. What does he mean by that? It's difficult to know. He could be saying, as one points out, that there is so much red tape. You know, this injustice gets dealt with, and then it gets passed up, and so on, and then you have to report to another person at the end of all this that the the person who is the poor and the needy and the oppressed is just forgotten. Um, and so that's one interpretation that, you know, with all the bureaucracy, you're just not going to get justice. Another one is when you look at the word watch, the idea is they watch out for one another, and so these officials are looking out for one another, and, the, and so the poor man has no chance for justice because all the higher-ups cover for each other. That's what people call as cronyism. And then the third possible meaning is one level of government steals from another level. They watch them closely to take advantage of them. And so Solomon is saying, don't be amazed when people in authority abuse their power. That could be another meaning. Uh, they're going to make a power grab eventually. And, and so, and if the poor suffer, so be it. And so here we have the problem of tyranny. All these things, all the possible meanings, either bureaucracy or cronyism or tyranny, it, the point is clear, injustice prevails. And, and verse 9 here seems to offer us a solution or, or actually just continues explaining the problem. Again, these are difficult to understand, but this gain for a land... In every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. Now, this could mean a godly king is the best defense against government corruption. Solomon is a wise ruler, and society needs a wise ruler, someone who values economic freedom, who encourages people to prosper by cultivating their own fields, working their privately owned land and keeping the money they earn and then pouring it back into society. And so that could be one meaning of this. Another one is it can mean the exact opposite. That's what makes this so hard. The king is not part of the solution. He's part of the problem. Everybody's cultivating the land, and they're tilling the land, and he's keeping all the profits. And this reading, the administration is greedy, and they're overtaxing, maybe you could say. And that's another injustice. In either case, the point is, given the sinfulness of our leaders, 
Um, We may see that in our day. We've seen it ever since America has been founded. There's sin in our leaders and the corruption that is all too common. And unfortunately, it's not too surprising. You will never have the ultimate stability from your hard work you may desire. That's what he's driving. Why? Because corrupt governments or officials will continue to oppress the poor and rob the worker. In the blink of an eye, our money can be sinfully stolen. Even when you earn it and work hard for it, someone in authority can just tax you to death. And and so wealth cannot provide stability. Or maybe we could say money cannot provide safety from corrupt governments. That's one thing he points out. Solomon moves now from talking about wealth and poverty uh, on the national scale, the government is the problem, and he, he makes it personal in verse 10. It's not only the public officials who want to get your money, but it's also our own temptation to want the money. And so he looks at verse 10, money cannot provide satisfaction in life. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Some people treat money as a god and make an idol out of it. Solomon says this person loves money. He loves wealth. And you see, a person who loves money and wealth cannot be satisfied no matter how much is in the bank account. They just can never be satisfied. Why? The reason is because our hearts were made for something greater to satisfy us. Something elsewhere. Jesus said, take heed and be aware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things which he possesses. That's Luke 12, verse 15. Paul said, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. The love of money is this vicious cycle of evil. First you love money... And then you love more money, and then you kind of start loving money even more, and you crave it even more, and it's never enough. It's just never enough. The, the craving for it is never quenched. The pursuit never ends, and therefore satisfaction never comes. Why? Because as Solomon said in chapter 3, verse 11, God put eternity in our heart. And so our lives will be unsatisfied until we find our satisfaction beyond our possessions and, and, and find it in eternity, find it in God. And so money cannot provide satisfaction. And Solomon goes on in verse 11. Here he tells us money cannot provide solutions to all life's problems. When good increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with, their, with his eyes. Now, you see here, Solomon's obvious here. He tells us money provides us many good things. And without it, we would not have food. We would not have a place to live. Uh, we would not have a place uh, to rest. All these things, money is necessary. But it's not a cure-all. That's the point. For every problem we often uh, think it is a cure-all, it is not. It just will not. Solomon says an increase in wealth, usually what it does is it starts creating new problems that we never knew existed before. 
he mentions one here. Relatives and friends start showing up and enjoying their hospitality, our hospitality, that is, and they eat away our wealth. This happens often in the entertainment industry. All of a sudden, somebody becomes famous, and overnight, they're millionaires, and there's more than enough friends who will come along and willing to take their cash. I'll pay you back. I just have this investment, and then they never return it. One person has said, every time you lend money to a friend, you damage his memory. <laughs> they, they never return the money. Or again, maybe it's not your friends or family. That's not the issue. But it's, again, the tax agent we talked about earlier who visits us and decides, man, you make a lot of money. and That's not fair. We're going to take even more of it from you. The point is simple. The more we have, the more people want it. And, and, and if they succeed in getting it, getting it, we will never be able to enjoy it ourselves. They take it from us. We can see it with our eyes, but we don't have a chance to enjoy it. And so money isn't the solution to all life's problems. That's the point Solomon's making. And next he tells us money cannot provide solace in life. Look at verse 12. Sweet is the sleep of the laborer, whether he eats or little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. A good day's work, an honest day's work will bring solace or or peace, Uh, but the rich often find themselves sleepless. They're never really at rest. They they never are at peace. I I think I've told this story already in, in connection to Ecclesiastes about Rockefeller. When asked how much money is enough, he answered just a little bit more. And, and so he was never satisfied. That is true, but he also never had solace. Rockefeller's life was almost ruined by wealth. Uh, it's said that at the age of 53, Rockefeller was the world's only billionaire, earning about a million dollars a week. Uh, but he was a sick man who lived on crackers and milk and could not sleep because of his worry. He just wanted more. It could not provide him peace or solace. And so finally, Solomon tells us money cannot provide security in life. Look at verses 13 to 17. And there is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what is gained is there to him who toils for the wind. Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. And so here you have a picture Solomon paints of two rich men. One hoarded his wealth and ruined himself by becoming a miser. The other man made some unsound investment and lost his wealth. He was right back where he started from, you know, and he had no estate to leave to his son. And so he spent the rest of his days in the darkness and defeat and discouragement, and he did not enjoy his life. Like all of us, as the Apostle Paul said, for we brought nothing into this world and we cannot take anything out of this world. Kind of reminds us of the parable of Jesus in Luke 12 of the rich fool. Jesus said, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And so he tells them a parable, saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. 
And he thought to himself, what shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Money cannot provide security in life because life does not consist in the abundance of our possessions. And see, true security in life only comes when what? As Jesus said, rich toward God. And that leads us to what Solomon says in verses 18 and 19. If money cannot provide stability... If money cannot provide safety, if money cannot provide satisfaction or solutions or solace or security in life, he tells us in verse 18 and 19, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all this toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is a gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy in his heart. And the answer to all this, where we find stability, safety, satisfaction, solutions to problems, solace, or security, the answer here Solomon gives is both a what and a who. What is good and fitting is to labor faithfully. Enjoy the good things of life, he says. And here's the, more, uh, the most important point. And accept all that as the gracious gift of God. Instead of enjoying your wealth, enjoy God's daily gifts. And just notice, did you notice this? In just three verses, he mentions God four times. In in verses 1 to 7 in chapter 5, he mentions God six times. Then he spoke of money in verses 8 to 17. And then he returns back to God and mentions God four times. If you want to know how to use your money, how how to use your possessions, it must always be thought about and considered with God in mind. The ability to enjoy life's blessings is what? He says, a gift from God. And therefore, it can only come from God. And notice that Solomon isn't saying having riches is wrong. If you're here this morning and you're rich, praise God. He says God gives wealth, God gives possessions, God gives power to enjoy them in verse 19. He isn't advocating for poverty or riches. Money itself isn't evil. It's the love of money that's the root of all evil. It's not evil in and of itself. And so the issue is whether or not you will see having money as an end in itself, I need more like Rockefeller, or whether you will receive money as a gift from God and use it accordingly. The point, one writer says, is that without God, life is meaningless and miserable, especially if we are living for money. But when we know the God of joy, even money becomes a blessing. And one of those blessings is found in verse 20. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. See, if God, God himself keeps us occupied every day of our lives with joy, 
joy in our hearts, then we will not worry about or fret about how long we will live. We won't sit around worrying if we've made enough money or, or how many possessions we've accumulated or, or even the difficulties that we face. Why? Because he says we know joy can still dominate our lives despite those things in plenty and in want, in wealth and in poverty. And so what he does is presents a choice to us. We can spend our days pursuing wealth, possessions, the things of this world, or we can spend our days pursuing God and enjoying his gifts. That's the choice. It's the same choice Jesus gives you when he says, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one or love the other, or he will be devoted to one or despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. That's Matthew chapter 6. And so he's challenging us, which will it be? And see, I believe, as I'm sure you do, Solomon has made a clear case for us to pursue God. He's saying, let God be your master. Let money just be a servant as you pursue God. Well, let me ask another question. What is the joy of the Christian heart? Solomon says here, God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Or another translation says, occupied with the joy of his heart. What is the joy in our heart? What is the joy of the Christian's heart? Uh, what is that should occupy us? What is that? Well, the answer is obviously it's God himself. More specifically, it's Jesus Christ. It's Christ. That's the joy of our hearts. That, that even though wealth cannot bring you stability, even though wealth and possessions cannot bring you satisfaction and solve all the problems in life and give you peace and security, Solomon's saying God can, or as we know, Christ can. I want you to think about this. Rather than expecting the government to bring you stability in life, you need to live by faith that someday there'll be a better administration, but not the one you're thinking of maybe. We read about this in Isaiah, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. See, when Christ reigns, and that day is coming when Christ reigns, justice will reign. And so let Jesus be your stability in life. And money, money cannot provide a satisfaction, but Jesus does. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, he says, for they shall be satisfied. See, the hunger and thirst for righteousness is the hunger and thirst for Jesus. He alone can bring us true satisfaction because when Christ is our satisfaction, we are living the way we were created to live, as we learned last week, to the glory of God. John Piper put it this way, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. And so Solomon's saying, let God, let Jesus be your satisfaction in life. And what about solace? 
Well, Jesus says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say, I am going away and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. My peace I leave you. Christ's peace is greater than any peace that money and possessions can provide. Because it's the only peace for this world and the world to come. And so, the challenge, let Christ, let Jesus be your solace in life. Which leads to our last provision, security. Here's what Jesus says. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one, no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Do you want security? Well, you're secure in Christ. No one, no one, no thing, nothing can snatch you out of the Father's hand or out of Christ's hand. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, Paul says in Romans 8. And so let Jesus be your security. Why would you bother yourself with the love of money when you can find stability and you can find satisfaction and you can find solace and you can find security in the rich love of your glorious Savior, Jesus Christ? In Him, in Him. Why settle for the pitiful pleasures of this world when the greatest pleasures are available to you in Christ? Why? In Christ are riches, if you are poor. In Christ is honor, if you've been despised by this world. In Christ is friendship, when you've been forsaken. In Christ is help, when you are injured. In Christ is mercy, when you are miserable. In Christ is joy, when you are sad. Protection, when you're in danger. Deliverance, if you've been captive. Life, if you are mortal. In fact, in Christ are all things if you have nothing at all. And so you see, beloved, when Jesus becomes your everything, when the treasure you crave is none other than Christ, see, what happens then is then you enjoy your money. You enjoy its benefits because you are using it wisely for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this reminder uh, that we know, I'm sure we've, we've all recognized that you are greater than our finances, and yet how often we turn to the things of this world for joy and peace and satisfaction and safety. And Father, we ask that you would enable us by your Spirit to turn to Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.